You're listening to the Get Fucking Real Show. Strap in as your host, Lisa Cherney, takes you on a ride full of GFR moments. From powerful messages to exclusive interviews to untold stories of super shitty moments before big successes and even real life confessions. Lisa's been mentoring millionaire entrepreneurs for over 20 years, coaching top coaches and tapping her mighty woo woo side to mentor the best of the best spiritual peeps. It's time to bring on the straight talk from successful, soulful entrepreneurs, inspiring you to live without regrets, to create your legacy, and be unapologetically you. And now, it's time to GFR. Life is too short to be a slave to your own dream, cause I'm working too hard, and I want to feel so alive. I jump out of bed because I love my life. Living on my terms, I know that I will thrive. Being myself, clarity will arrive. So I stand out and be J-U-I-C-Y. Stand out and be J-U-I-C-Y. Hello, hello. Welcome to the GFR show. I am so glad you're here. And this is a bit of a groundbreaking episode because we are replaying a much earlier episode. And as I've gotten more into it, and now I'm recording this new updated intro, it's gotten more and more profound. You know, as divinely inspired ideas often are profound, this is just, it's so interesting. So the first interesting thing is that I realized that it was exactly 100 episodes ago. So this is episode 13 that we are replaying today. Our guest was Scott Sargent, and the title of the episode was From Paralyzed Olympic Athlete to Suicide Profession Speaker. And he was top on my list for who I wanted on the show when I first had the idea that we were going to be telling stories about entrepreneurs who have been through it, been through trauma been through things that they might, you know, not readily share otherwise. And those things informed their latest expression of their business. Kind of like, you know, all our struggle has a purpose theme. So I met Scott years before the show and heard that he had been paralyzed and was quadriplegic. And now he's, you know, walking around And just that in itself was like, wow, I need to have him on the show. And then I got to know more and more his story deeper. And if you haven't listened to this episode yet, I'm not going to give you spoilers. I will say that Scott died two years after the recording of his episode. And he died because he lost his battle with mental illness. So this is a profound moment to seize, to allow that to sink in as you listen to his story. And it's even further poignant for me because part of Scott's story is that he became a quadriplegic for a time. And my mom, in her last eight months of her life was a partial quadriplegic from a car accident. 
And I watched her mental health struggle vividly. She was a athlete, a lifetime athlete, and really identified largely with her body's ability to, you know, she was an avid tennis player and, you know, in her later years, you know, pick a ball and pat a ball and she fiercely competitive. And when she was younger, she was a tomboy before even there was a name for tomboys and the athletics for her really got her through, you know, growing up and, you know, into adulthood and everything. And very similar to Scott in his journey to the Olympics and then having that being taken away. So I have seen vividly the mental health challenges of this kind of experience. And it profoundly changed me watching my mom go through this profoundly changed me. I was already on a journey of de-emphasizing my body identification. And if you haven't you know, heard my story about that, um, we'll put a link in the show notes to my episode called Fuck Dieting. That's episode 85. I was already on that journey when my mom was being very confronted by her body identification. And oh my gosh, guys, I just... I can't say enough about how profound this feels to replay his episode. I think of him often. He has now his friends and family have created a foundation in his honor. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And on that webpage for the Scott Sargent Foundation is a movie that a friend made about his life. And it is, it's amazing. It's poignant. So If you're feeling like you want to lean into the preciousness of life, if you are struggling with mental illness or mental health and you want to not feel alone, for sure know that in this moment you are not alone. You know, as a mom, I'm watching my daughter who's a senior and all her friends go through all the stress of college and finals and AP exams and all, you know, all the things that are supposed to be joyful, creating so much stress. and. It's just, as you all know, I know my listeners are savvy from a mental health perspective. You know that this is a big, a big conversation in our world today. So I, my intention is that sharing this episode again, helps Scott's life have even more meaning than it did when he was alive. Without further ado, Scott Sargent. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Get Fucking Real show. I love saying that. (laughs) Oh my God. I just, I'm just so excited that this show is like a thing and it's happening and we get to have these juicy conversations with these just delightful people that have been through hell and back to birth the next level of their work and mission in this world. And this one is not going to disappoint. Our guest today is Scott Sargent. And Here's the question I want you to think about. Imagine waking up in the hospital paralyzed from the neck down. What would be your first thoughts? Well, Scott knows. At the height of his success, he was running for the U.S. Olympic team in the hammer throw. It's a track and field event that kind of reminds me of Thor in in many ways. And 
His dream was literally shattered when he woke up in the hospital paralyzed from the neck down and was told that he'd never walk again. Quadriplegia was his diagnosis. And miraculously, six weeks later, due to a recovery program that he designed himself, he walked out of that freaking hospital. But it took him 18 years to finally share publicly about the emotional trauma and the journey that was happening under the surface during that time in his life. I am honored that he would choose the GFR platform as a additional venue for this confession that is going to be like a shockwave through the community of listeners as is most of these stories, and at the same time, so relatable, so relatable. Couple other fun facts about Scott. He's also an aerospace engineer. When he went to UC San Diego, that's actually where he discovered the hammer throw and where he started training nationally and got on that Olympian track. And he regularly speaks about the champion's mindset how to overcome adversity and perform at your best. He also is committed to helping raise awareness for people dealing with mental and emotional health challenges, including depression, post-traumatic stress, and suicide prevention. And this is such an important conversation for us to be having. I have been delighted to get to know Scott. I met him about five years ago or six years ago at an industry event. And I just knew him as this guy who was paralyzed at one point, you know, walking around, you know, just tall, dark and handsome as he is. And was just so amazed just by that little tidbit of information that I had about him. And then it got even juicier from afar in terms of hearing about his evolution. And then recently we made a point to connect and we took a walk by the ocean and we talked and talked and walked and walked for hours. And I said to him, I have to have you on the show. And so you'll hear us referring to this walk and talk that we had recently because it was so juicy and the infancy of this conversation that we had that you get to hear. So I am Really excited for you to get to meet and get to know Scott and hear this amazing story. Let's get on with it. Scott Sargent, hello. Welcome to GFR. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. This is so great. We've been talking about this for a while. We went on an awesome beach walk like a month or so ago. And like I feel like it was like all warm up for, for this interview. So thank you for being with me. Yeah, excited to continue the juicy conversation. I'm so excited for people to get to meet you and hear your story. And it's just so fucking unbelievable. I mean, in so many ways. And yet, it happened to you. I mean, so many of the stories here are fucking unbelievable, but yet so relatable. Like, that's the thing that I think is so profound is that even though not everybody has been in prison or been through abuse, you know, they seem kind of extreme yet so relatable in the micro view of the day-to-day of what we all deal with. So I'm excited for my listeners to be entertained as well as enlightened. (laughs) Can you do that? Yeah, for sure. Well, and it's funny, I I know you're referencing other episodes, but I'm like, check, check, you know? (laughs) Oh yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Now I'm reflecting on our conversations, like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Been there, done that. Well, yeah. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah, those are sidebars, but anyways. I know. I mean, and the gift of the show has been to let showing people you are not alone. All that shit that you're not talking about, that, that you are embarrassed about, that is you, especially if you're a mission-driven entrepreneur, like it all serves. Like, you know, let's just talk about it. Let's acknowledge it. Let's really look how it's serving you. and Let's move on so that you can do your thing in a bigger way and make a bigger impact. Yeah. Well, you know, it comes to mind this, I don't know who it was that said, you know, life is what happens when you're making other plans. Yes. So I love the way that you excavate the, the parts of the conversation that are uncommon, just like you said, that people don't normally talk about, but it's often those things that can have the biggest influence on our lives, our relationship, our business, whatever it may be. And that's where the real like meat and the juice of life often shows up. It is, isn't it? It is, isn't it? So I will let the listeners know that there is sort of two parts to the journey that we're going to take with you. Yeah, so let's just jump in. Tell us part one that is your GFR wormhole story. That is, yeah. Well, there's a lot a lot of tapestry, but I'll try to keep fairly focused. And I guess just to you know, give a little lead up in, in, the, in the preamble, you know, I, I grew up with a love and a passion for sports. I grew up playing soccer and baseball, loved it, was you know, a gifted athlete, always in the all-stars and the playoffs and all that jazz. My father was an engineer. My mom was a high school chemistry teacher. So I had this really strong math science environment. I grew up in too. So I ended up, you know, as a really good student academically, I did really well. I was, I, I loved everything. I joked that we had scientific American on the coffee table and I read it. <laughs> so I, I, I had this, you know, sort of all American, you know, all around superstar childhood. And, you know, I always thought I had just, you know, a really great, I certainly was very blessed, you know, always had everything that we needed and most everything that I wanted. And when it came time, you know, graduating, I was, I was second in my high school class, but I grew up in Southern California. I didn't want to leave the area. And I chose UC San Diego for college for two main reasons to study engineering because they had this really strong engineering program. But also when I went to visit the campus, I just fell in love with, you know, La Jolla and overlooking the ocean and Scripps Institute of Oceanography. My dad had been a, a scuba diver and I actually got certified when I was 15 to wow. scuba dive. Yeah. So, and, and my father actually passed away unexpectedly when I was 13. He took a turn too fast, motorcycle in Mexico, went off the side and fell and broke his neck. So... That was a traumatic thing, but I was fortunate in that I had with scouts, with different athletic teams, you know, I had a lot of other strong male role models that really came, you know, and rallied around me. And in, in a certain sense, I, I kind of had a super dad, you know, because I had all these other great men, you know, show up in different avenues of my life. In the middle of high school, uh, I got a little frustrated with the politics of those team sports of soccer and baseball. Was kind of complaining about that. One of my best friends, neighbors across the street, ran cross country and track or distance in track and field. And him and his dad were like, hey, you know, come out for track and throw the shot put or something. And I don't know if any of you know, I tried the, high school, the shot put in junior high. It was, uh, I don't know the weight for that age level, but it's like a 12 pound steel ball you throw from your shoulder. And a good throw at the high school level is like 50 or 60 feet. 
And when I first tried it, I thought this is the dumbest thing ever, but I got to a point, <laughs> I got to a point with the politics. I was like, okay, I'm, I, I'm done with that. I wasn't going to quit. Right. What do you do? You never quit. I tried to get the baseball coach to kick me off the team by taking my trigonometry homework to the games. Cause most of the baseball players were happy to get their minimum progress. And, you know, here I'm a straight A student. Of course, didn't realize at the time what coach is going to be able to kick a kid off for being too studious, right? <laughs> but what is that? one of the things I was taught as an athlete, right? You never quit. Yeah. It's, it's a key thing. And then a lot of, I think, you know, your audience, you know, as entrepreneurs, we relate, we get into mindset where we're, we are committed, we're focused, we're passionate. And, and we have that thing that drives us. And that's part of what, you know, sets us up for success. You've got to to have a drive to keep going through the adversity. Yeah. So then Uh, you don't quit was something that really was ingrained in you. Right. Young age. Yeah. Right. So I, so I didn't, I finished out that season, but then I chose something different and then playing around with the shot put, I actually had fun. I had a lot of success. I ended up winning the, the league championship, almost going to the state meet, almost breaking the school record and really appreciated in track and field, the team experience which I hadn't expected. We train together as a team. We cheer each other at meets. But when it came down to competition, it really was all on you. And the performance was pretty black and white. You know, the tape measures and the, and the two lines of the sector, very rare that an official's call, you know, would determine the outcome. And I didn't have those scenarios where I might have played a great game, but my teammates, you know, didn't or made a mistake or something happened where we still would end up losing. So, again, I had a great experience there, didn't, didn't think much of it, went to college, really focused on a very competitive engineering program, but then went out to talk to the coach about throwing the shot put. You know, he watched me, you got some potential, some things to work on. By the way, you ever thought about throwing the hammer? And I was like, what's that? What's that? And it's, we're not talking about, oh God, I'm just totally lost all my street cred with the geeks. We're not talking about... The Marvel character who has a hammer, <laughs> which is, please fill in the blank for Thor. me. Thor. Thor. Oh, my God. Right. He said the Norse god of thunder. Went, I think I just went right to the image of him and my brain just short-circuited. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not talking about Thor. What are we talking about? The hammer. No. Well, in, you know, in, in a certain sense. But, yeah, I mean, so the, the Olympic hammer is one of the original Olympic events in track and field. It's a 16-pound ball. The collegiate and Olympic level is 16 pounds. So if you imagine a bowling ball, at the end of a four-foot metal wire, a flexible metal wire, and then there's a D-shaped metal handle you hold with two hands, you stand in a seven-foot circle. So if, like, you know, you're a speaker on stage or, you know, the, the red dot and the TED stage, it's not a very big area where you swing this thing around. Then you actually spin like a, like a pirouette, like a ballerina, with this enormous amount of force and, and speed and and energy going you accelerate that ball to get over 60 miles an hour within a couple of seconds and you release this thing with a huge roar and it launches like out of a cannon going like 70 75 yards wow so of course I didn't do that the first day but I got hooked again I, I was talented I just totally fell in love with the event worked my butt off ended up winning two collegiate championships broke the, the collegiate record and went on to the Olympic trials the year I graduated. So this is while pursuing a full-time engineering curriculum, came up almost 
with the biology minor in the process and putting myself through school, you know, at the, on top of that. So oh anyway, I joke that, has anybody heard of a professional hammer thrower? Of course, no. <laughs> That's hence the term amateur athlete. You know, there's a lot of professionals that have been allowed in, you know, the NBA players and, and so forth. But in the U.S., hammer throw is not high on the, on the money sport list. So I went to work full-time as an engineer, but wanted to continue to pursue my dream, my passion of just the sheer joy of that event for one. I mean, I would have done it if you didn't pay me. I did a lot of my training post-collegiate on my own during lunchtime. I kind of joke, I was like Clark Kent, you know, and Superman. I would change in the car to go practice at lunchtime. You kind of look like I, him. I, I ended up getting the nickname Thor. Oh, you did? Uh, okay, good. So. <laughs> I, I worked with the Home Depot and did some promotional appearances and thanks for them. They had an Olympic job opportunities program. They were actually one of the top supporters of the athletes back in the 90s, which was the primary part of my peak career. And I, and I worked my way up into the top 10 in the ranks of the United States in 1994 in the running for those top three spots in the Olympic team. I didn't make it in 96 in Atlanta, which was actually heartbreaking. You know, I, was, I wasn't really... I was a long shot for sure, but I had just so, you know, put my focus and my mind and my heart and my energy and every day visualizing that waking up and stepping in the Olympic stadium. I saw the Olympic stadium from the inside when it was under construction in Atlanta. You know, I had pictures around my, my bedroom. I literally wake up and go to, go to bed every night. And I'm sure a lot of your, you know, listeners as well, you know, entrepreneurs, the, power and the, and the importance of that vision and the visualization and, and imagination, the embodiment that I call it centralization, actually, because you want to incorporate all the senses and even especially the emotional kinesthetic experience. Oh, centralization. I like that. <laughs> so 96 comes and goes. I didn't make it, but I'm, you know, forged ahead. I'm working full time as an aerospace engineer. I kind of had this dual life and, and, and some of the personal development work I, I was doing I, I started to mix those two communities where I realized that, you know, whether I ever win a gold medal or not, the Olympics are as huge sorts of inspiration for me. And I didn't need to wait to be on the podium to be able to share what I was up to that would inspire people. And, you know, the engineers that I didn't normally talk to about it, they'd be like, holy cow, you know, he's training for the Olympics on top of that. I'm hearing that you found the blessing just in even that piece of it of not getting into not, not getting to Atlanta, right? You found the blessing and sharing, like sharing that piece of you and the transformation and all that you had learned, just striving for that goal is what yeah, I'm Yeah, well, and I think that cliche almost, you know, success is not a destination, you know, success is a journey, not a destination. I really was embodying the being of an Olympian and committed to creating unity, excellence, and celebration. Not only in my own experience, so I got to live the experience of, of being an Olympic champion, of being an Olympian, even though I hadn't had those standards yet in the outer world. And it was beyond that for me, you know, and I talked about being a champion or being an Olympian. As someone that's a leader in the community that's, that's up to inspiring the, the, the greater good, that's, you know, we, our Olympic athletes are representing our entire country and the best of, of what we acknowledge as human achievement and not just the athletic endeavor, but people know the commitment, the focus, the drive, the dedication, to some extent, the sacrifice that it takes to achieve that level of performance in any endeavor. 
you know, and so whether you're an athlete or not, the Olympics can be a huge source of inspiration. So I got to live that more fully than, than most of the other competitors that I knew, even that had other, you know, higher athletic success. There's, there's so much, so many rich lessons I got out of that. And that's one of the reasons, honestly, I kept training knowing that whether I won that medal or not, I was building, you know, my character and developing traits and, and attributes that would serve me no matter what I did in life. It could not have foreseen what, what ended up happening. So in 99, uh, the year before the Olympics, I'm not only working with the top American athletes, I was one of the first hammer throw or track and field athletes at the Olympic Training Center. It was open in Southeast San Diego, working with the world record holder and international level, you know, elite athletes. I meet the woman on my dreams. I fall, you know, head over heels in love. I think, oh my gosh, the fulfillment of everything that I've wanted and, and hoped for and dreamed for and trained for is all coming together. And then I had one of those total blindside experiences. So I end up waking up in the hospital, looked down from the hospital bed and I could see my body. I could see my arms and legs, but I couldn't move them. I couldn't feel them. And it's a unique experience. It's not numb. There's just nothing. Wow. Like I'm floating in space. And the doctors came in and they started to tell me that I'd gone head first down a flight of concrete steps. I landed right on top of my head. 6'2", 245 pounds of, of force and in, in, in that energy. I shattered bones at the base of my neck, badly crushed my spinal cord, was paralyzed from the neck down. Wow. Then they gave me you know, what I refer to as that life sentence of quadriplegia, you know, that told me that I would never walk again. Wow. I, I mean, I just can't even imagine the short circuit. Like it's just complete annihilation of everything that you knew in that moment. Yeah, I was definitely blown to pieces, you know, totally devastating, totally overwhelming, totally surreal experience. Uh, especially from being in a world-class athlete, you know, yes. in one moment to then being faced with the prospect of not being able to enjoy my body and the, and the freedom and the sensations in, in any degree. So I had a, what they called decompression surgery. They took out bone fragments from my neck. They put in a chunk of bone from my hip. They put a titanium plate and screws over that C4 to C7 span of my, the base of my lower half of my neck. And basically, you know, the prognosis was, well, let's hope for the best. But the reality is that people don't walk after this. Reality, quote unquote reality. The reality is. And, you know, all we can do is wait and see. And it was, you know, I don't know how, how to even go back to that. And, you know, I'm loaded up with all kinds of medications and painkillers and this and that. So, you know, I was a little bit out of it, too. Uh, and after a week in the, I was at Scripps Memorial Hospital, one of the best hospitals in San Diego, and, you know, got to be incredibly grateful for the care that I received. But after a week, I was transferred to the rehab hospital. And it was a horrible day. They, one of the nurses dropped me when they were getting me into bed. So I had this like lightning of bolt of pain and white light flashed through my whole body. Oh my and God. And I screamed as much out of fear as in pain because I was afraid that somehow she had damaged the, the site where they did the surgery or, you know, and also I wanted to make a point that I was precious cargo. 
you know, I was not just going to be another one of those people that, that came through in the same way. So I screamed, I said, get her out of here. I never want to see her again. You know, I mean, I had to prioritize myself in that moment. Right. Right. And I made them do x-rays and check, you know, everything's fine. It's fine. I said, okay, well, I'll speak to that, or I guess right now, not, not normally in the sequence, but my feeling was that it was actually good for me to have the, the sensitivity and the awareness of there being pain, but I didn't want to cause damage to that, right? So, yeah, I'm a little out of sequence, so I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll shift gears to that day, that end of that day, my, my head coach called me on the phone. I'm lying there in the hospital bed, and he asked me, you know, how are you doing? The nurse is holding the phone to my ear, because I can't even hold the phone. And I'm like, what do you mean? How am I doing? Hmm. You know, this is beyond my worst nightmare. Forget about the Olympics. You know, they're saying I'm never going to walk again. And I was overwhelmed and distraught, you know, and the emotion, the, the fear, the uncertainty, you know, the physical agony. And again, trying to welcome what bit of pain there is, knowing that there's some sensation, because the, for the most part, there was next to nothing. And, you know, he listened to me, but then he interrupted and he actually had the nerve to challenge me. He said, okay, well, are you going to fight, make yourself well, or are you going to give up and quit? There's that quitting thing. <laughs> and I could not believe that he would say that in that moment. I'm like, inside, I was just furious. I was fuming. I wanted to scream and, you know, say, go fuck yourself, right? We get to play yeah. with that language on this, on this yes. podcast. <laughs> so I didn't want to give the poor little nurse a heart attack who's holding the phone and, and I couldn't hang up on him. And so as I'm sitting there in this, in this inner rage, you know, I think the, the engineer in me, you know, looked at the logic of that choice. And then I'd like to think that the Olympian, the champion in me, you know, responded. What came out of my mouth was, I'm going to fight and make myself well. I'm going to recover 100% and walk out of here. And he said, okay, great. And that's what we'll do. And we really had no idea how to do it. You know, the, all the doctors, the experts were saying that's not going to happen. But we were able to align on that intention, that goal. I knew the power of language, the power of that declaration, creating that world of possibility to live into. And it gave me, you know, two important things. One, it was able to, you know, harness the power and the, you know, the gear, the drive, you know, all the tools that I had developed, not just as an elite athlete, but as a professional in, in you know, my career. And I had run a nonprofit, you know, doing leadership training about all these things I was able to grab a hold of that had, you know, that had just, you know, been lost and, in, 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 you know, broken to smithereens through the experience. And so we did, you know, kind of my program, we created my own healing program in the hospital, which was very different and very in the face of, you know, what was normally done. So, you know, I talk about three keys, you know, your champion's mindset, I harnessed that power, that vision, that drive. I did the visualization work to imagine the healing's seeing myself going back in that stadium, having the gold medal winning throw. I might as well use those patterns that I, you know, practice over and over to try to get a flicker of some spark of movement again in my body. I used those skills and, and explored and developed new ways to see the healing inside my body, to see my nerve cells healing, repairing themselves, regenerating, rerouting around areas where, where the, the, the cells were too far damaged to be able to be brought on. I really took charge of my environment. My, my perspective was, hey, you guys work for me. I'm not here to do what you do. You know, you tell me. I used to brag that I was not a patient. I was an impatient. You know, <laughs> I had to my chart and a diagnosis at the top. My name, you know, diagnosis quadriplegia. 
I said, scratch that out. I'm not going to be a quadriplegic. You can put, you know, broken neck, temporary paralysis, spinal fusion, you know, but I'm walking out of here. And they're like, dude, you don't get it. You know, you're in denial. Maybe you have a brain injury. You know, you just don't <laughs> understand how bad this is. And I was like, I don't care. Whatever you got to do, get, get behind me and push or get out of my way. And I'll tell you something that was, was wild. You know, I brought in my own food. As an Olympic athlete, I wouldn't eat normal food. And most everybody in our culture, I think, knows that hospital food's terrible. I, I mean, I wouldn't have eaten that when I was training, let alone now that the stakes are even higher. You know, when you think about it in perspective, training right. for the Olympics is a pretty, you know, luxurious thing. It's a, it's a pretty, pretty high luxury. Wow. I'm talking now the rest of my life, whether I'm going to have any movement or sensation, what, what the quality of my life's going to be like moment by moment. Yeah, it was a total pain in the ass. Took over the hospital. Transform your environment is, you know, one of my third key. So the people that were in any way negative, if they said, you know what, Scott, you might have to accept that's not going to come back. Oh, sorry, you can't work with me anymore. Please send me someone else. You know, I get it. They don't pay you enough to, you know, wear a skirt and pom-poms and be a cheerleader, but I couldn't have anything negative in my space. Beautiful. And so, you know, out of that, I really created my own recovery program, which was very different than the norm. And while in my outer world, I couldn't do anything. I was working my fanny off on the inner world. And there was not like I had total certainty. You know, there was all the pain, all the anguish, all the anxiety, all the uncertainty, but I had this one place I could keep coming back to as much as I could to bring my focus. And bit by bit, I'm lying there and, and all the doctors are saying I'm crazy, but all these other people start saying, you know, Scott, you're so inspiring. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you know, before when I'm training for the Olympics, I'm doing all this cool stuff. I got that all the time. And I'm like, yeah, I worked my butt off. I'm, I'm badass. But th then I'm lying there and I just, I got it. Like, that's just part of who I am. It could not be that. I just, I want to pause on that because it's so easy to feel that everything that you knew about yourself was annihilated in that moment. And who am I now? And so many listeners have had these moments where something's been ripped from their life without their consent that impacts their identity in a immeasurable way. And they feel like they've lost that part of themselves. And what I'm hearing you say is that you were able to reconnect with like that champion, that mindset, that, that person who fights, that person who like, and maybe you can characterize it better than I am trying to, to reiterate it. Like that's me, that, that core is me. I happen to channel that into being an Olympian and now I'm going to channel that here. And of course now I know you, the man you are now, and you're channeling all over the fucking place now. Right. At the time though, that was, an awareness for you to see like, Oh, okay, this is part of me. Yeah, it's great. You know, and you speaking that I had this vision, you know, of like some Greek statue and I kind of was almost this Greek God, you know, kind of physique and persona and energy and like that, that gorgeous sculpted piece of marble just got shattered. You know, you could literally like <laughs> with the hammer. Yes. And yet in the, in the space, in the vacuum of all that was obliterated, there was still that pure essence or that being. And I think that's a powerful lesson of, you know, we go through this adversity and things in our life that sometimes we rebel against, we resent, we would like to not have. And yet that's part of what I think life brings to us to strip away, you know, the outer trappings 
So in a certain level, we can reconnect with our, with our true selves and, and what matters most. And it, and it forces us, it forces us to recreate ourselves and we can struggle and try to recreate who we used to be. You know, I'm sure all of your other guests and, and, and most of your listeners will, would acknowledge and nod heads as well that in looking back, those things are some of the biggest blessings, even though they were hell at the time. Yes. <laughs> and they've opened up not only outer you know, pathways, but an inner expansion and, and, and growth fulfillment may not have been able to happen any other way. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> so, so the story is amazing. I'm, I'm hearing think, you sharing things that you haven't shared before. At least I haven't heard you share before. Thank you for helping us really to be with you in this story. And, you know, this is straight talk and confessions from successful software entrepreneurs. So there is a juicy, juicy confession that you actually made publicly a couple, was it a couple years ago now, I think? Yeah. Um, that, yeah. That I, you know, that I'm honored that you're going to share here with my listeners. So yeah, I'll let you transition, like finish this chapter. Sure. You know, it's just a, I mean, like the whole show could be about this. <laughs> and it's so, I mean, I've gotten so much out of it already, you know, but your, your life is, was meant for even more contribution mm-hmm. to this next piece that you're going to share. Yeah, well, to punctuate, you know, what I euphemistically now call the cool story, I strained with more intensity than any Olympic lifting and training that I ever did just to move my little finger, you know, to get the faintest little flicker of movements. And within just a couple of weeks, I started getting those things. And then I started to get some validation to what I'd been saying. And they're like, you know, no, 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 you're crazy. To then getting that. And once I got those first little bits, I knew that I could build it back, which, you know, that again, was so blessed with the background I had in my training and the hyper awareness I had about my body. It was maddening to know in, in vivid detail what wasn't working. But once I got one little cell, one little nerve fiber, one little muscle, you know, then I was able to build what's next to it. So I ended up getting up and getting up in a walker after just a month, taking steps in physical therapy. And then they're basically like, oh, he's fine. And <laughs> tried to push me out of the hospital. But I, I was able to walk under, symbolically under my own power, walk out of the hospital after just six weeks. Fuck so you. that's my, my triumphant miracle. And That is amazing. And, and, and so, you now work as a spinal cord injury recovery coach, which like wow, like that, that in itself, it's an awesome divine life purpose. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm blessed to be able to support other people and in, in meeting that challenge and overcoming that adversity. And in my own personal progression there, I was able to not only, you know, get back to kind of normal life, but even picked up the hammer and discus, worked at making a comeback for a period of time, you know, went on to run triathlons and hiked Mount Whitney a few years ago. So wow continue to, to stretch myself. Now paddleboarding is one of my new passions, which is pretty demanding on balance and coordination. So it's great for me to keep challenging myself. And I have to tell you, us going on a walk together, like walking beside you, of course, you're much taller and bigger than I am and little old me. It was, that was kind of fun. But the thing that like we were walking, you were walking, like I just had this profound sense of gratitude and connection and, re- and reverence 
that we were fucking walking down this path that you were walking, you know, and, and we even talked about like, do you still kind of have gratitude? Like, do you still, you know, and you share like, yeah, like, yes, I still like look down at my legs and just like, thank you, Lord. And, and I for sure was more connected to the gratitude that I had for my healthy body and walking beside mm-hmm. you. So yeah, just wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. There was, there was a long period of time where, you know, I had to spend a certain amount of attention to orchestrating that walking process, even though I looked fine to other people, you know, I was always kind of having to run myself like a, a marionette, you know, and thankfully to this, at this day, you know, mostly I'm able to be back into total unconscious competence about it. And even for me, like you said, you know, it's, it's a great lesson because, you know, anytime I have any kind of stress or challenge or whatever, you would think, well, you know, God, Scott, you were paralyzed, you know, how can you have anything to complain about? And yet we, we know the power of our focus and the nature of human beings is that we learn things, but we also forget things. Yes. <laughs> so even I, you know, can benefit from those reminders from time to time. And, and what I like to focus on with people and my clients and in, in, in speaking so forth is what's empowering, you know, cause I could use that as a stick to beat myself you know, oh, Scott, you were paralyzed. You know, what's the big deal? This is the, well, yeah, but this is the next frontier. This is the new challenge that's showing up now in this moment. And how are you going to deal with that? But anyway, to shift to the next chapter. Let's shift. Well, I had been speaking before my injury and and, and all that, but, you know, I, I obviously did more and more speaking and let go of my elite athlete career and was focused on running the nonprofit. I created an event called Paragliding for Possibilities, where we took people out of their wheelchairs, flying in tandem at the Torrey Pines Glider Port. You know, I had a lot of media presence with that. Wow. And uh, inspiring, you know, huge numbers of people and audiences, you know, who knows what, what scope and on TV. There was a documentary made on about me in 2000, the Olympic year called Mission Possible. And, you know, the year that I was visioning, you know, competing for the gold in, in Sydney. I, I got this, this won a national award actually for that story of, of triumphing over that adversity. And yet the more I told that story over the years, the worse I felt because deep down I felt like a fraud. And while everybody was inspired outside of me, I'd been withholding this, you know, to me, this deep, dark, terrible secret. I guess it's just shy of three years ago I got a call out of the blue asking me to do a TED talk. And of course, yes, but where did this come from? Well, someone had heard me share in a, in a, in a small group at a, an advanced speaker training, this secret that I'd been hiding and had really been eating away at me inside. And I'd really been digging at this wound, working to heal it. and knew I needed to you know, become public about it at some point, but just did not feel ready, did not feel safe, just unwilling to go there. And yet, you know, sometimes I think in your entrepreneur, you know, audience can relate. We are striving and preparing and and working toward this big goal, this big launch, this big, whatever it may be, you know, a a turning point in a relationship or our career, even our health. And then the universe sometimes pushes us before we're ready to quite jump and fly. That's for sure. (laughs) Then we have to flap our wings like crazy on the way down, right? I've never liked that metaphor of, building the plane as you as you're flying it especially being a, a, a what I now say retired aerospace engineer <laughs> I knew when that that call came that it was time 
And so it was in a prison, no less, Donovan Penitentiary, which perfect coincidence and synchronicity of the universe, three miles due south of the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista, where I was one of the first track and field athletes. I'm pretty sure I was the first throwing event athlete uh, and then later coached and worked with other athletes and then U.S. Paralympics. But I knew I could tell this amazing story, but what's, your, what's my one main point? And my talk title was The Truth Will Set You Free. And what I ended up revealing was that that accident, it wasn't actually an accident. So I intentionally dove headfirst down that flight of steps, willfully kept my arms to my side, landing headfirst on top of my head, trying to kill myself. What I had struggled with under the surface that got me to that point was an emotional trauma that for me got triggered in that romantic relationship. It just broke something inside of me. And I had this, you know, heartbreak and heartache and emotional pain and agony that just was like this volcano erupting in my chest. It wouldn't stop. The searing pain, nothing physically wrong with me, but in agony. You know, there's science now that that has shown that the brain can't tell the difference between emotional pain and physical pain. And I, I had the most intense pain that I ever experienced. It was beyond what I could have ever imagined. Now, being Mr. Superstar, strong, tough guy, all the things I was taught as an athlete, you know, I couldn't show any weakness, got to stay in control, strong, you know, never let him see you sweat. I literally couldn't sleep. I didn't sleep a wink for weeks and weeks. Got to the point where my coach was like, Scott, you know, there's not really any point in you training until you get this part, you know, your body back on track. Uh, my manager at work noticed my performance with off. I was like, you know, well, I had a really bad breakup. He's like, yeah, I've been there. You know, you just got to focus on work. You know, it's, you, you block it out. All these masculine strategies. Cause those are the, that was the structure and design in my life and all that, you know, that all that I had that was supporting me and what I was striving for. And yet that became that, you know, kind of proverbial Achilles heel and my perceptions through the media of the mental health profession, you know, or mostly through the filters of Hollywood and the media. I imagine that if I went to a doctor, I'd end up locked away in restraints, pumped full of drugs the rest of my life. And being the warrior that I was, there was no way that I was willing to turn myself over to that kind of fate. And all the tools and all the things that I used, you know, nothing was making a difference. In fact, it was just getting worse. And I didn't want to kill myself, but I got to the point where I couldn't take that pain anymore. And it wasn't like I thought a lot about it or really strategized or planned. But I imagined that, you know, this, again, 6'2", 245-pound pile driver, you know, down 14 concrete steps, head first onto the concrete landing, would crush my brain case and do the job. Says the and, engineer. <laughs> yes. That was, a, you know, that about the extent of the thought I put into it. And... I chose to do something, you know, again, somewhat impulsively looking back that I thought my thinking at the time was that that would look like an accident and somehow be easier for my friends and family to deal with. One of the sinister layers, you know, that I've uncovered since then was that that was also the structure of that identity, preserving that secret even into death that nobody would know that weakness, that failing, that failure that I couldn't, you know, that I couldn't deal with that on my own. Wow. Yeah, keeping your secret even in death. Mm. And the paradox of that, the one thing that would have given me a chance of access to getting out of that hole would have been to share that what was really going on for me and to ask for help. Yeah, and I remember when you first, you and I were talking about it, you, it was 
so profound to me how how much you felt like there was no help. There was no help. There was no safe help. There was no one to talk to because they were going to lock you up. You couldn't tell your coach because, you know, that's weak. You couldn't like, like the profound feeling of isolation and helplessness that got you to where you were is you know, given the external scenario that you were living is so, is so notable and how you created that such a strong story, you know, within your depression and the other things that you were going through, like it was just so convincing that there was no other way out, which Mm -hmm. I understand is a common thought process for people that are suicidal or have attempted to kill themselves. And what a powerful confession to make. I'm just Mm -hmm. so in awe. And and I met you before you made this confession. Mm -hmm. I met you and that was like the the guy who was paralyzed and is walking again, it was Olympic athlete. That's who I met, right? And, And that's what stuck with me. And then to really witness from the outside, you're coming out and confessing and the TED talk, just such fucking courage, Mm. such amazing, amazing courage to, yeah, it's amazing courage. Like what, what had you like, what had you finally decide to share the secret or like, yeah, what else do you want to share with us about, about that? Well, it's interesting, you know, so much, I think, you know, a life is a setup you know, things that we're unaware of, unwitting of, you know, sometimes I joke about, you know, like that, that dive and that intention that I had, but you know, that I had too hard of a head. Uh, (laughs) And the training that I did as an athlete, the hammer throw, you know, that you're spinning, you know, again, the ball's going like 60 miles an hour. The force of that weight at the end of that ball gets over five, 600 pounds. So that's all going through the neck and shoulders. So an incredible musculature and development there. And that literally helped prevent further damage to the spine and the spinal cord. My, my surgeon said he'd never seen so much damage to the spine without the cord being cut or severed, which in that case would have been a whole other magnitude of challenge to overcome. Even far less severe impingement of the cord you know, can result in total quadriplegia. The unexpected blessing of that training and all that I dedicated myself to was I was uniquely prepared for that. Not at all what I expected or planned for, right? But my, you know, my big vision, my goal was winning that medal and standing on the podium and being able to inspire, you know, millions with the arena of the Olympics. And yet the actual, you know, path that I've walked, the life experience that I've had and the story now, I believe is so much more inspiring than any gold medal that's ever been won. And the breadth of, audience that I can reach and the depth of the humanity, you know, the human experience that that touches and the, and the range now of people that I can be with. And I was very compassionate before, but the compassion for others, but especially for myself, it's expanded so much more. So I, I joke, I don't want to tempt the universe, but I often will say, I don't think there's anything that anyone could bring to me that I, that I wouldn't be able to be with and powerfully hold space and, and engage and support. Sometimes just being heard 
is the greatest gift and the most powerful thing that we can give to another human being. Yeah. You know, and that your message is so great, you know, get fucking real. It's like, I went through the Tony Robbins training, all the stuff, you know, how are you doing? Scott? great. You know, no matter what I really felt under underneath and on the inside, you know, I had to present that facade. So now I'm much, much quicker to turn to my support system and other people. And, you know, when I'm struggling, I don't wait. Years later, I actually called one of the crisis hotlines. And I just said, thank you for being there. Thanks for, for what you do for people. You know, here's what I did. I wish I had called you. If I could go back in time and talk to that guy at the top of the stairs, I would have been like, Scott, just, just, just talk to someone and put my arm around him and, and take him to somewhere to get some, some good support. And it's not like there's necessarily easy answers in that, in, in that kind of crisis or, you know, there's whatever challenges that we're facing. One of my mentors, you know, as a saying, Any, anything you want, life's outside of your comfort zone. <laughs> right. And sometimes the universe pokes us there to get our attention to things that we need to either, you know, break up or expand our barriers in order to not just have the things that we want to have, but really become more fully ourselves, become who we want to be. And that's, you know, as Tom Landry is one of his great quotes I love is, you know, a coach is someone that tells you what you don't want to hear and has you see what you don't want to see so that you can be who you've always known that you could be. Yes. Beautiful. It's really ironic that one of my themes, I think it was the year before my injury was literally that, and I don't remember who it was, but it was, you know, that the essential thing at any moment is being willing to give up all that you've known yourself to be for all that you can be. So the path that I've walked, you know, the life experience, the wisdom that I've been able to share, you know, as a speaker, now I'm able to speak and it's still, you know, challenging and confronting for me. It still brings things up, but I'm forever free in that sharing that from prison, no less, outing myself on the TEDx stage in prison in front of a hundred inmates and armed guards and all that. I mean, you know, that's just like, yeah, that's my life. Yeah, right? you can't make this shit up. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, I do feel so blessed. It's, you know, it's still, you know, painful. It's not, not something I wish on anyone or would want to repeat. And yet the blessings have been profound and the ability that I have now to help other people and whether it's supporting them in their physical healing and being that inspiration that someone can recover from quadriplegia or whatever devastating, you know, diagnosis they might get. Michael Beckwith, a great quote I got from him, going to have on the, the jacket of my book cover is, you know, the doctors can give you a diagnosis, but your prognosis is between you and God. You know, if I'd been willing to accept that, then I fully believe I'd still be in a wheelchair. But I was able to harness the tools and a different vision and then committed action from there to, to create this different future. And both in standing for myself, but being able to inspire others. And then, and then it's, you know, same thing with my business clients that are overcoming whatever inner barriers they might have to their business and, and, and life success. Because those distinctions, those success principles are the same and then being willing to acknowledge the vulnerability, you know, getting authentic. And sometimes people have a, a high level of success, feel like they can't show, you know, the weakness, the, the areas where they're struggling, don't have it all figured out or handled. Or maybe they're successful doing something they're no longer passionate about and they just haven't figured out how to excuse themselves or, or, or redirect. Yeah. One of the things that you and I geeked out about on our walk was, the idea of confession and 
I am learning and will continue to learn the nuances that word from a, you know, a pure, you know, word standpoint brings for people. The thing that I wanted to touch on with you is, and the thing that I'm, I want to get more and more intimate with is the anatomy of a confession from an internal standpoint. And that, you know, the moment I've been talking about how the moment that we GFR with ourselves, that GFR moment of shit, I cannot stay in this relationship. I need to get out of here. Like this is not working. Like, and have those thoughts float in and then do they just float out? Do we let them stick around long enough to drop in? Do we let them stick around long enough to tell someone else? Do we let them stick around long enough to start to take action about it? Like, or do we just go into addiction mode and eat our feelings and, you know, have sex and, you know, the destruction that's created from having awarenesses about things or it's a fascinating conversation, which of course the GFR commandments our 12 GFR commandments, I know the intention is that they're a roadmap, right, to embracing those confessions on, you know, we have confession questions for each of the commandments. And yours was the one that I, we always ask our guests to pick the one that they think will serve them now or serve their sort of GFR wormhole self. And yours was, where am I not speaking my truth? Which, of course, that's obvious, right? And then the commandment is, don't worry about being normal, proper, or polite, so I want to just, you know, in our sort of closing moments here, I want to talk with you about holding that piece of information that you fucking dove off those stairs, like holding that. And then I want to get into like the process or the moments where you're like, I need to, like, this is a thing this is standing in my way. Like this, like it becomes so much, at least in your awareness and something you're willing to admit to. And then the process for like excavating it and sharing it. <laughs> That's a great question. It's like, is that our next three episodes? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I just, I just like, because I just, I really want to serve the listeners that have a thing, have that thing. No, it's awesome. It's really great. Are so ashamed of. Mm-hmm. You know, I get emotional thinking about it. And it's like, what popped open for you when you were willing to like, let that cork go is the man that is sitting here that is so emotionally available and capable and an amazing healer and, and athlete and all that, you know, and I just, I, I feel the capacity of our listeners and what's possible for them. So I want to, I want to serve them as best we can in this moment with, you know, so I'll just let you follow your intuition with what you want to share around. Uh, yeah. So much, you know, some great questions. One of the, things I'll say is that I, I, I do feel blessed. And, you know, part of my commitment is to be, I, I, I use that metaphor of the hammer, you know, part of that, part of the hammer that shatters the stigma around the conversations of mental health and wellness, and also, you know, depression, anxiety, and suicide, it's just become just absolutely epidemic, you know, in our culture and our world. So that's one of the things I speak to, to, you know, audiences in, in those arenas as well. So much of that was under the surface and unwitting or transparent to me. And, and I think part of the, the potency of my message is that, you know, if that could happen to me, it could happen to anybody. Yes. And whether it's that degree of intensity or not, you know, we all have blind spots and 
here I had great coaches. I had, you know, great training development support. I had all these resources, you know, I mean, I had medical insurance. I could have gone, you know, into any hospital or, or doctor or, you know, I actually had an appointment that evening with a holistic therapist, which was one of those final blocks where I was like, no, I can't do that. Cause if I tell them I'm going to get literally handcuffed and, you know, taken to, you know, psych ward. And it was probably better than 10, 12 years before I even recognized some of the impact and the outpicturing and these things like guilt and shame was well, something I haven't talked very much about, but you know, a week after that really galvanizing conversation with my coach, he came to visit me in the hospital. By then I made enough of a nuisance of myself. I got my own room and had him close the door and I told him what really happened. And he looked right back at me and said, you can never tell anyone. Wow. Which just totally reinforced the story that I was telling myself that had me make that choice at that time, you know, to begin with. And I know that he was trying to protect me because had that been revealed, you know, then at 5150 and all the other restraints, I wouldn't have been able to do all the, my own program I was doing, like normal protocols would have been, I mean, I might've been in restraints at that point, you know? Not that they would have been needed because I couldn't move at that point. You know, I was, part of my thought process was a lot of shit. Now I can't even kill myself, right? <laughs> oh, oh, my God. But again, the work I've done now excavating, looking back, there was that trauma and that grief when my dad died when I was 13. I had a very contentious relationship with him. So it was a complicated thing. But that grief that started to well up when I got that news, I pushed it down. I was like, no, I got to be strong for my mom and my brother. So I never let myself feel and have those feelings. And back then, you know, what the answer was not let's, you know, get him in therapy or this or that or the other. It was like I had a week off of school and it just went back like life was normal. So that whole thing was under the surface. And then two years later, I discovered that my father had had an affair. And so that anger, that rage, you know, that betrayal, a lot of that energy, the moral programming I had, the, the religious upbringing I, I had, even though I didn't consciously subscribe to it, all that stuff was and the underpinning. So then what happened in the relationship was significant, but it triggered the stuff that was, you know, a million times more intense that just overtook me like a tidal wave. So it was a long time before I even recognized that. So hopefully me sharing my story helps people get that x-ray vision to somehow see it in themselves, you know, the reflection in my story or however that, that impacts and in, in whatever the areas in their life that they're unwittingly sabotaging themselves or maybe emotionally paralyzed. Like it took me 18 years to come to the point to be able to publicly address the emotional journey, which was the true cause of my accident. It was the true accident. I fell in love. I had this most amazing thing that held within it, you know, this thing that broke me apart. But that was the divine blessing of what needed to happen. So then when I started to, to recognize, oh, like guilt and shame and seeing some of the patterns of my life and relationship and my business and things not working out and why am I feeling the same way? Oh, and I started to really dig at that and work at that. And, you know, with my coaches and, and mentors and other, and other close people in my life, I got to the point of sharing that privately and being a choice about that. But there was a big disparity between I'm up there on stage and I'm sharing this cool story and people are like, oh my God, you're so amazing. And that voice in my head is like, yeah, if they only knew the truth, you know, they wouldn't think so highly of you, Scott, which was bullshit. That was part of what needed to get, you know, busted up. And the shift that finally happened when I spoke that from that stage publicly was I forever got a hold of that more than it ever will have me. You know, it doesn't mean that it doesn't still dog me to some degree at, at some times. 
and I, and I feel that energy, but I'm unwilling to let it run me. And I'm more committed, you know, to my own process and, and, and then, you know, to making a difference for others. I hope that answers that question. And I try, I, I guess I'd like with you, I'm going to trust that, that touches and lands for people in just the right way for them to be able to see for themselves, you know, what is that thing that they've been hiding or holding on to that they feel is too dark a, a secret or, 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 or too incongruent with, with the truth or what's acceptable in our culture or society. Or maybe they've just been, you know, unwitting of. Or maybe it gives them the courage and the space to approach somebody else in their life and ask those really, you know, real, raw questions. You know what? What's really going on? I can tell. Are you sure? Or just in case, you know, if anything ever, you know, what's that? Every parent, God, I'd love to have them have that conversation with their kids. You know, if you ever, ever get to that place where you're thinking about hurting yourself, you know, if everything's get that bad, you know, talk to me, you know, get help. Here's the, here's the hotline. I tell people to call the hotline when you don't need it. Get in touch with those resources before you need it. <laughs> One less hurdle for you to try to have to overcome. Yes. And then it's a matter of what's our focus and do we get on that escalator going up or going down? So if we're on the down escalator, how do we pause? How would he shift? How do we get the resources to support when we can't do it ourselves to get going back the direction that we want to? And part of that is, you know, this is the right venue. I'll go ahead and say it. You know, it's maybe kind of edgy, but one of, one of my mentors, you know, said to me, you know, something and wisdom that he'd been told that, you know, sometimes it's okay to commit suicide. Just don't hurt the body. Wow. Wow. You know, like, so there's parts of us or even an, an entire identity that's needs to die. Needs it's outlived its usefulness. It's, it's, it's becoming more of a, of a shell and a container than, than a platform that, and that empowers us. Uh, can you say it again? <laughs> It's okay to commit suicide. Just don't hurt the body. Oh my God. Ooh. I am having like a full body emotional reaction to that profound and important quote. And it's funny because I was thinking, I'm going to have him end on a quote because he's really good with quotes and you just, uh. you just did it. You just <laughs> fucking did it. That was amazing. And Yes. Well, more and more and more, but yeah, that's, you know. That is, this is the right venue. And that is so true. It is, oh my God, it's so true and so scary for people. Well, the power of our language and the power of the energy in that, and then the power the potency of our emotions. And you know what? When, when we suppress it, it's going to come out one way or another. And it's usually going to get worse, you know, not better. That's the good news, bad news of it, right? Yes. Scott Sargent, thank you for helping us get fucking real today. It was a delight. I could talk to you for three more hours. We'll just have to go on three more at least walks. <laughs> well, and it, you know, it's a nugget, but I think, you know, I, I, we talked about this before and I'll, I'll just touch on it. But okay, for me, the, the words are so powerful. Confession, you know, what you talk about committed suicide is now, you know, not politically correct, right? We want to, we talk about, you know, taking your own life or the negative connotation of those things is something I think just to be mindful of when, when you talk about confession, it's actually something that's a liberation. You're, you're freeing yourself up, but I know there can, you know, there's some religious context and, 
and our and our legal, you know, criminal, you know, court justice system context. But the opportunity of those questions, those confession questions, are how do you reveal your truth? And it's a it's a claiming, and it's an, and it's a freeing, and it's it's actually creating the clearing for something new and for your magnificence, your authentic self to emerge and be expressed. And you know what, that the Marianne Williamson quote, you know, when we let our own light shine, you know, we give other people permission to do the same. When we're liberated from our fear, you know, our presence liberates others. Amen, brother. Amen. Thank you for this privilege of this conversation. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me for this GFR show retrospective and for honoring an amazing person who contributed so much to the world while he was here. Again, I'm encouraging you to go to his foundation page. There is a movie about his life there, and you can also make a contribution. And of course, if you have not downloaded your GFR commandments, please do that. So you have your roadmap for getting real and keeping it real. And subscribe to the show so you don't miss any more of these amazing, inspiring stories. Over and out for now.